From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, July 30th. I'm Aaron Schechter. The Syrian army steps up its attacks against rebels in Aleppo. One analyst insists there's still an opening for international diplomats to help stop the violence. To force, compel, cajole and persuade the two sides to go to the table and to negotiate. And later, members of the punk band Pussy Riot plead not guilty to charges of hooliganism. They've had a greater effect on Russian politics than any Russian politician has. And it's just these very young, very sweet, very innocent, lovely young girls. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Intense fighting was reported again today in Syria's commercial capital, Aleppo. Government forces shelled rebel-held neighborhoods determined to flush the fighters out. The army claims to have retaken one key district in the southwest part of the city, but the rebels say that's not true. Meanwhile, the United Nations says some 200,000 civilians have fled the fighting in Aleppo. In a few minutes, we'll hear from the Archbishop of Aleppo, a leader of the Christian Orthodox community there. First, we turn to Vali Nasser. He's the dean of the School of, of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And over the weekend, he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times titled Syria After the Fall. In it, Nasser argues that those hoping to quell the violence have to look beyond the likely fall of Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad. It's time for the international community not to delude itself that this is just a democratic uprising against the dictatorship. And as soon as Assad goes, the fighting is going to stop and Syria is going to get back to business under an elected government. That's not likely to happen. This is already a civil war. It's about much more than uh, Assad. It's about uh, the balance of power between communities in Syria and which one is going to run the country. Assad's departure from power does not resolve the larger issue of Alawites controlling the military, the economy, the bureaucracy, and various other aspects of the government. And whether or not they would be willing to hand those over to Sunnis who come to power, and whether they will feel trust that even if they did that, there wouldn't be a massacre of the minorities who supported Assad as a reprisal for the violence that has been going on. Now, the way things are going, you paint a, a kind of Iraq-like or Lebanon-like scenario. Is there a way to avoid that at this point? Well, it is very much like Iraq. Iraq was also a minority regime ruling over a majority population. And when Saddam left, we found out that it was not about Saddam. It was about distribution of power. The way to resolve this is to try to not be focused on Assad alone, but try to arrive very quickly at a power-sharing agreement that would make the fighting unnecessary. We understood this in Iraq after a lot of violence and eventually got the two communities to agree to a power-sharing agreement, which was part of the reason the war in that country stopped. And similarly in Lebanon, the only reason the fighting stopped was after the Saudis brokered 
a power sharing agreement about 20 years ago. So the international community ought to focus on how to get Syria to a power sharing agreement. It's going to be difficult, but ultimately that's the only way to avoid a bloodbath. Are you optimistic that it will happen that way? I'm not, uh, for two reasons. <laughs> that the international community has not really shown a willingness to engage in, in the kind of uh, diplomacy and brickmanship that would make this happen. Secondly, is that there are no troops on the ground to at least force a ceasefire and convince both sides that the fighting cannot go on and they better get to the table. And therefore, we ought to be prepared for Syria going in a direction of greater violence and bloodletting for some time to come. Well, one of the problems is that the diplomacy that you're talking about requires sitting down at the table with Iran. I mean, how likely is it that uh, the West would speak with Iran? I think it's unlikely in an election year in the United States, and also generally there has not been a good track record of talking to Iran on any issue, any issue other than the nuclear issue. But the reality of the matter is that Iran is the most important supporter of the Assad regime and the one with the greatest influence on it, and is the one that has a relationship of trust with the Assad regime. Ultimately, the role of the international community is not to negotiate necessarily a final deal, but is to force, compel, cajole, and persuade the two sides to go to the table and to negotiate. So if we're thinking of a negotiating into this conflict, it cannot happen without Iran's involvement. Now, there are a lot of players in Syria, as you point out, and a lot of minorities there who are really afraid of what comes next. You know the situation they're in. They can't condemn Assad for fear that he stays, and they can't condemn who might come next for fear of who that might be. How do you assure these different groups that things will be okay post-Assad? It is not that they're caught in the middle. Uh, They don't like Mr. Assad, but they are much more worried about what the opposition will do to them, because at least under Assad, they had certain degrees of uh, freedoms and rights and social and political position, all of which is in jeopardy now. And there is no guarantees to be given to them unless there is a deal according to which some of their rights and privileges will be protected, as should also those of the Kurds, Alawites, and uh, those Sunnis who've supported the regime. That's ultimately what a deal would mean. Vali Nasser is dean of the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. As we just heard, minorities in Syria have been especially fearful of what happens when Assad goes. Mar Gregorius is a Christian Orthodox Archbishop of Aleppo. He left the city a few days ago, but he says getting out wasn't easy. When you go to the airport, for example, you can see many cars ruined and burned and This is something which is frightening everybody, that the city as it is an empty city. Aleppo is passing in a very, very sad and complicated situation. Now, there is talk of there being a civil war in Syria, sectarian violence, Sunni, Shia, and Christians at each other. Do you think that is the case now, and are you especially worried for Syria's one and a half well, million Christians? Well, of course, I am, I am worried, but I think that until now the Christians refused to be part of this sectarian war, and we refused also to receive guns, and we said that we don't need anything. If we need something, it's the humanitarian aid. But, you know, among the soldiers, we have some Christians, and we cannot tell them that you don't have to fight. Do you think that Christians are being especially targeted these days? We have people who were killed, yes, from our community and other communities. Uh, some were uh, soldiers, 
and uh, some were kidnapped also. Some people paid money and some people were killed by the kidnappers, but we don't know yet uh, the identity of the kidnappers. Christians have historically been supportive of the Assad regime, and I wonder if your impression of the regime has changed. I think, to be frank with you, the language has been changed. We avoid to speak as it was before, to speak for the regime or the, for the president. This doesn't mean that you are taking part in a, in a position side. So I think this is the right time for us to say the truth that we are with the country. It's very important to speak about coexistence of our, for our, uh, both religions, because otherwise, if we will be fanatic and be against the Muslims, and they will be against us, it means that we are destroying our country. Are you afraid for the future? I mean, in the United States, we talk about the Assad regime having to go, but we don't talk much about what comes next. This is a problem that uh, they are talking about the change of the, of the president, uh, but they don't tell us who is coming to rule this country. If it will happen as today in Libya, for example, the, the fanatics will come and control the country. We need to hear that nothing will happen to the Christians in Syria. Mar Gregorios is the Archbishop of Aleppo, Syria. He's currently in Stuttgart, Germany. We reached him on the phone. Thank you, sir, so much. Thank you very much. In Russia today, three members of the punk band Pussy Riot appeared at their trial in Moscow. The three women pleaded not guilty to charges of hooliganism. They're being prosecuted by Russian authorities for singing a protest song inside Moscow's main cathedral last February. The women have been in jail ever since. The song, performed at the cathedral's altar, voiced opposition to Vladimir Putin's return to the Russian presidency. Now many Russians see the case as part of Putin's crackdown on freedom of expression. Pussy Riot is larger than the three musicians on trial. It's also a feminist punk collective in Moscow. And British journalist Carol Caldwallader had a chance to interview three other members who've been in hiding since the arrests. She wrote an article about her interview in the British newspaper The Observer over the weekend. Carol, where did you meet these women and uh, what did they look like? Well, it was midnight, more or less, and um, it was in this derelict factory building, um, which had sort of been turned into art spaces and rehearsal space. And we were led down this uh, stairwell into a basement. And then the door opened into this tiny little uh, rehearsal room, I think, which is where bands rehearse. And in it were three of the women wearing woolen baklava masks and brightly coloured dresses and brightly coloured tights. They were terribly, terribly nervous to begin with, and um, I was just really taken aback. Um, did, did you actually Do you actually know who they were? No, I mean, it was very much... The whole point about Pussy Riot is to be anonymous, but they introduced themselves. They said they all have nicknames, and so one of them was 25. She was called Sparrow, and then there was a 20-year-old called Squirrel, and uh, another woman who was in her early 30s, and she was called Balaclava. Yeah, and you filmed the interview on video, and uh, we have a clip here in which they explain why they wear their masks. When I put on my mask, I don't feel like a person who can do everything. Of course, I'm the, I'm the same person, but this is another part of me, which have more courage and which has strong feeling that what she's doing is right and she has uh, enough power to change something. Is it like being a superhero, then? You have your ordinary... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like uh, being a Spider-Man. Or something. Or, or Catwoman. Yeah. <laughs> really? You put on your mask? Yeah. 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 
So there they are, the three superheroes. How do they live their lives? This is why they're so like sort of Russian superheroes, because they have totally normal lives. I said, what sort of jobs do you do? And they said, some of us are journalists and some of us are linguists and some of us are art school. But their families and friends have no idea that they're in Pussy Riot. So it's this totally secret thing that they do. It has to be because the FSB, the secret police, who are these successors to the KGB in Russia, you know, they're incredibly powerful and they use technology to spy on their citizens. So they have to keep it deadly secret. And then they just have done these performances from time to time, these incredibly daring, adventurous sort of performances. And I said to them, is it like you get the call and you have to dash home and change and put your balaclava on? And they were like, no, you always have it with you just in case. In case you have to run into a phone booth. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, they're nervous about uh, what the Russian authorities might do to them. Are they worried for their families? Some of them have children. Well, the ones arrested have children, don't they? That's right. So two of the women who are arrested have very young children. They haven't even been able to see their family members or their husbands. I mean, it's very interesting because on the one hand, they're facing these very serious charges up to seven years in jail. But you don't really get the sense. I mean, the thing I got the sense with them, because they are so sort of young and idealistic and optimistic, their view is that change has to come. Putin cannot go on. The Russian regime is corrupt and it will come to an end. I just get the sense that they're not really contemplating what would happen, you know, if they do get jailed for seven years and if they do get sent to a sort of, you know, horrible prison in Siberia. So, and they're, you know, and they're very excited because they're activists and um, they've had a greater effect on Russian politics than any Russian politician has for the sort of last 10 or 20 years. So it's quite amazing what's going on. I mean, the thing about it is, is that I think everybody recognises it as a signal that if Putin is going to be prepared to go after three young, lovely, cute, educated, very middle-class women, he'll go after anybody. And where that ends is a very, very scary thing. Carol, thank you so much. Thank you. You can see some of Carol Cadwallader's interview with Pussy Riot members in hiding. The video is at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. I tuned into the Olympic coverage over the weekend, and there's one question that's been really bugging me. Why the heck are there so many empty seats? It happens every four years, swaths of empty seats at events, especially headliner events, the early stages, like last night's swimming and gymnastics. Mahir Bose is covering the Olympics for the Evening Standard. He's also author of The Spirit of the Game, How Sport Made the Modern World. Sir, what is going on? Why does this happen every four years? Well, generally speaking, Olympics have been held in countries where the passion for sport is not that great, not at least for certain events, and therefore you get lots of empty seats at archery or judo or volleyball, you know, not sort of major headliner sports. This time there have been empty seats at swimming and gymnastics, and it has come against a background where London said the passion for sport in Britain is enormous. Whatever the sport, people will turn up. Yet, there are empty seats. The question is why? And the culprit has turned out to be not the sponsors, as some suspected, but the wonderful Olympic family. The Olympic family. What, what does that mean? 
Well, this is composed of members of the International Olympic Committee, the people who own the Games and decide who will host the Games, uh, which city will host the Games. They're also composed of the officials who head the 204 Olympic committees around the world and the leaders of the International Sports Federation that determine how the individual sport will be run. So they're all members of the Olympic family. They've got tickets, and it seems many of them have just not turned up. And how many members of the Olympic family? We're talking of a few thousand here. And, and remember, these members of the Olympic family, to them, sport is almost a business and politics. So during the Games, they often have lots of meetings, a bidding war going on for the 2020 Olympics at the moment. So in between all that, uh, some of the members might just forget that they have a ticket for gymnastics or swimming. <laughs> it is difficult for them. You've got to sympathize a bit, you know. Uh, Mahir Bose, do I detect some jealousy? <laughs> Not at all. No, I think the problem is this. What happens The cities that host Olympic Games think that because they have spent a lot of money constructing the theater, as it were, where the play takes place, they feel that they actually own the Games. They don't own the Games. They're only leasing the Games for a period of, at best, 18 or 19 days. So basically, uh, you're just saying, <laughs> we need to stop making a story of this every four years. It is what it is. Yeah, I'm afraid it is what it is. I think the IOC, being the sort of organization it is, is reluctant to change. It's not easy to change the IOC. And the and members of the International Olympic Committee feel very strongly that this is their games. They make all the right noises, you know, the games are for the athletes and this sort of thing, you know, which is good populist thinking. But in reality, it doesn't quite work out that way. Mihir Bose is in London covering the Olympic Games for the Evening Standard. Thank you, sir. Thank you. There's more to these Olympics, of course, besides the empty seat saga. The world's Alex Galifant is also in London following the Games. And Alex, what's been catching your eye? Well, Aaron, given what you've just been talking about, it's interesting that there's actually more resentment at the privileges accorded to certain sponsors. And this time it's from athletes at the Games. Uh, some of them have been using the Twitter hashtag WeDemandChange2012. Um, it's an informal campaign to loosen restrictions on athletes who are sponsored by companies who don't sponsor the games themselves. And what are the rules for those athletes? Well, as with everything uh, related to the um, International Olympic Committee, the rules are very strict. Only official Olympic sponsors are allowed to promote their brands at the games. And for the duration of the competition, athletes competing in London are prohibited from using their participation in the Olympics to promote their non-Olympic sponsors. And that includes tweets, blog posts, anything, T-shirts, the works. Is London still buzzing from Friday's opening ceremony or has that excitement dissipated now that the sports are underway? You know, I think I think people are still pretty excited. I mean, there have been some really memorable performances today. A Chinese weightlifter, Li Shuiying, broke the Olympic record by lifting almost two and a half times her body weight. So, you know, we're seeing incredible performances already. As for Friday's ceremony, everyone loved it here. Uh, you know, even cynical journalists. People are still excited, sure. And, and the city itself? I mean, uh, Britain excited, but Londoners? What are they saying? You know, it's kind of weird. Um, a friend of mine was at the Winter Olympics in Vancouver two years ago, and she told me that, that back then the whole city of Vancouver was kind of transformed into a giant Olympic village. That's just not the case here in London. The city is so big, so spread out, 
that the, the Olympic glee hasn't really sort of penetrated every corner of the city. I mean, you see signs and directions for the various venues on, on buses and down in the tube stops. But everywhere else, unless you are actually at an Olympic site, you could wander around and not know that the Olympic Games were going on. It's kind of odd. Right. Now, there's no medal for poetry or uh, sculpture in the Olympics, but there actually used to be, as uh, our listeners may know. Um, tell us what you've been digging up on that front. Well, the last time that medals were awarded at the Olympics for art competitions, painting, sculpture, literature and poetry, the last time that happened was at the last London Games in 1948. And I asked a poetry performing ensemble called Live Cannon, they're based here in London, to give us a taste of some winning verse from that year. So the gold medal winning poem in 1948 was called Laurel of Hellas. It was written by a Finnish poet called Arla Tini. Uh, she was the only woman to have won poetry gold at the Olympics. And here's one of Live Cannon's performers, Alex Bartram. Laurel of Hellas, noble born, you tree of honoured name, reaching over unnumbered years. Your leaves extend their fame, and branches high proclaim the pride of one who never bowed, except to place your crown upon the victor's brow. So you get the idea. That was the gold medal poem. Solid stuff, like the tree. Um, the silver that year went to a South African poet. And the bronze, well, here's Alex Bartram again with a, with a nice little story. Gilbert Proutot was a Frenchman who was competing in 1948. He was due to compete in the triple jump. People thought he was going to get a medal, but he got injured just before, so he couldn't. So he decided to compete in the poetry event in, instead. Uh, and he won the bronze medal for uh, a poem of which this is an extract. Say ye, j'ai gagné, j'ai gagné. Le monde est à moi, la folie est en moi. J'ai gagné, which roughly translates as we made it. I've won, I've won. The world is mine, madness is within me. I have won. What do you think of that? That's great. Madness is within me. <laughs> That's part of Gilbert Proutot's poem, Rhythm of the Stadium, which won the bronze medal for poetry at the London Games of 1948. And we'll have some more Olympic-themed poetry from the performance group Live Cannon as the games go on. Alex, uh, what do we have to look forward to uh, tomorrow at the Games? At the Olympics, every day is an embarrassment of riches. Uh, tomorrow we see the women's team final in artistic gymnastics. There's lots of swimming and in the equestrian events, there's the last component of the team eventing competition. And a member of Britain's royal family, Zara Phillips, will be jumping on her horse, High Kingdom. The world's Alex Galifant, uh, with just a bit of madness in him, from London. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Aaron. By the way, those poems that Alex mentioned are at theworld.org for you to enjoy in full or to share. Tweet away. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, a San Francisco-based singer explores her roots, both in California and in Spain. When I was being raised in Spain, I didn't have any idea about this kind of, the cultures here, the Latino culture. I wasn't really aware of other Spanish-speaking folk. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. 
United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It seems like everyone hates bankers these days, but the punishments meted out in a massive banking scandal in Iran would seem extreme, even to the most radical Wall Street occupier. Four death sentences and ten others sentenced to decades in prison for a fraud scheme involving loans worth over $2 billion, billion with a B. Earlier in the year, the scandal threatened to engulf Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, whose economy minister narrowly survived an impeachment vote. Mohammed Sahimi is a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Southern California. He's also a journalist who writes frequently on Iran for the website Tehran Bureau. Uh, Dr. Sahimi, can you put this into the Iranian context for us? What do these convictions and punishments mean in Iran? What has been happening is the symptoms of uh, vast corruptions that have been happening in Iran ever since Ahmadinejad came to power in 2005. When he was running for president in 2005, one of his main team was that he would combat and root out corruption. But what has been happening is exactly the opposite. And this basically provides more ammunition for uh, Ahmadinejad's uh, uh, opponents in the parliaments and elsewhere to uh, um, basically uh, blame him for whatever wrong has been doing has been happening in Iran uh, over the past several years. So and they want to they want to try and take him down. But is, isn't it possible that for that very reason the charges are trumped up? Well, we don't know exactly whether the charges are trumped up or not. Simply because although many accusations have been made against his senior aides. None has been actually charged, but the Iranian mass media did publish several letters signed by uh, his chief of staff to several heads of banks and other organizations asking them to treat uh, favorably the people who were involved in the corruptions and have been convicted today. Now, my impression is that... um We in the West are always shocked by the support that Ahmadinejad has and has had over the years. Um, Is is this scandal eroding um, support for the president? Actually, his support uh, has been eroding uh, since uh, the past few few years. But as these financial corruptions come to surface and as the scale of corruptions become uh, clearer, uh, he has been losing uh, support even among poor people who basically made his base of support because people can see that while his uh, economic policy hasn't resulted uh, in uh, lowering the inflation and increasing the employment, his senior aides uh, have been involved in these uh, vast corruptions uh, that uh, seem to only benefit uh, a very few people. I wonder if part of the problem there is uh, the same problem here in in Europe, that bankers are just so despised that uh, any scandal involving banks, uh, you know, gets people very upset. Well, that's part of the problem. The other problem is that uh, uh, most banks in Iran are nationalized and controlled by the government. They are not private banks. So, for example, when you have an administration like Ahmadinejad, uh, that has been, uh, for example, granting large contracts 
to favored uh, corporations that are linked with his senior aides, and these are all done behind the scene, then uh, we get the problems that uh, mm-hmm. they are grappling with, with them right now. Mohammed Sahimi writes for the website Tehran Bureau. Iran was a big topic of conversation when Mitt Romney paid a visit to Israel this weekend. The Republican presidential candidate was there to meet, greet, and raise some funds for his campaign. He reportedly pulled in about a million dollars at a Jerusalem fundraiser this morning. Earlier, he got an enthusiastic welcome from the Israeli leadership. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu greeted his old friend Mitt Romney yesterday, and during a brief appearance in front of the cameras, they went straight to the subject of Iran's nuclear activities. In a comment that could be read as direct criticism of the Obama administration's efforts, Netanyahu said sanctions and diplomacy have not slowed down the Iranian program one iota. The prime minister had high praise, though, for Romney and his comments on Iran. I heard some of your remarks uh, a few days ago. You said that the greatest danger in the world is of the Ayatollah regime possessing nuclear weapons capability. I couldn't agree with you more. The two men agree on a lot, it turns out. When Romney gave a speech yesterday in Jerusalem, the left-leaning Israeli newspaper Haaret said the voice might have been Romney's, but the words could have been written by the prime minister's office. Yossi Sarid is a former leader of the liberal Meretz party. He says Netanyahu's embrace of Romney crossed a line. It amounted to an Israeli leader giving a political endorsement to an American presidential candidate, Sarid says. I regret the fact that Mitt Romney appeared on the Israeli stage as the next president of the United States. I believe it will function as a boomerang, regardless the results of the elections. Sarid says Israel needs all the friends it can get, especially in Washington, and any government here, the thinking goes, should not be putting the U.S. relationship at risk by betting on one candidate or another. But Shmuel Rosner of the Jewish Journal says that's reading too much into Romney's visit. It's no secret, Rosner says, that Netanyahu has had his disagreements with Barack Obama. I don't think Netanyahu intended to endorse Mitt Romney. And I think that no matter what Netanyahu says or does, most people would assume that he wants Romney to become president. The Israeli public probably prefers Romney as well, Rosner says, even if Romney's speech yesterday on substance showed that his foreign policy positions with regard to Iran, Israel, and the region are essentially in lockstep with President Obama's. Most of the things Romney said yesterday, Obama can also say that Romney considers Israel to be an ally, that he promises to always support uh, Israel's security, to always side with Israel. These are all things that that Obama can also say. But for some reason, there are listeners who would believe Romney more than they believe Obama. Still, Rosner says Mitt Romney's Israel trip was not about winning over Israelis. It was about projecting the image of a candidate dealing with serious foreign policy issues in a complicated part of the world. And it was about playing to the Republican base back home, especially Christian evangelicals, he says. But Romney may be as interested in winning over wealthy Jewish American donors. 
He spoke to about 40 of them at this morning's fundraising breakfast. Most reporters were barred from the event, but Romney was quoted saying something in his speech that didn't play well with Palestinians. He reportedly drew a distinction between Israel's per capita GDP and that of the people living under the Palestinian Authority. He said the reason for the enormous gap in income was culture. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Israel's been hosting some other international visitors. Just this month, clowns from around the world gathered there for some intensive training. They're studying advanced medical clowning. And that's not a joke. Israel is a leader in the field. Reporter Daniel Estrin paid a visit to a pediatric hospital in Haifa. It's no fun getting blood drawn, especially when you're four years old. Good thing Yusuf was joined on the examination table by a goofy man with a red nose. The clown grabbed a white medical latex glove, put it to his lips, blew, and ta-da, it was an impromptu balloon animal, a cow with udders. (laughs) Yusuf giggles while the nurse secures a cap onto a small vial, Yusuf's blood sample. His mom, Manal Zaytun, says a few months ago her son was diagnosed with a muscle disease. Since then, they've been regulars at Meyer Children's Hospital in Haifa. The clown very helped him. Uh, and when the clown come, he's not sick. While the clown kept Yusuf distracted from the needle in his arm, a few other clowns from Holland and Russia peeked their heads in. In their home countries, they entertain patients in the waiting room, but they won't enter the examining room. Doctors there don't want the distraction. And Anneli Rice from Holland says for many years her clown colleagues also didn't think it was right. Before, we don't want to associate with pain. It's when the child says, oh, now help, the injection will come in because I see a clown. So, but now we are changing and trying, and therefore we are here. Clowns came from Germany, Russia, Holland, Brazil, the U.S., and Canada to observe Israeli medical clowns in action. This one's in overalls and pigtails. My name is a clown name, Barambula. It's a, it's a little name, but the big name. It's Barambula Pistitata. Barambula Pist... Well, you heard it. Is trying to get a grimacing girl named Emily to walk up the stairs. Emily suffered burns on her legs and needs to practice walking again. So Barambula walks with her a step at a time and jokes with her as she climbs each step. There are about 70 professional medical clowns in Israel who work in about 20 hospitals throughout the country. The clowns are supported by a nonprofit called Dream Doctors, but more and more hospitals are chipping in to pay the clowns. This pediatric hospital, for instance, contributes half of the clowns' salaries. The hospital keeps at least three clowns on call every day, says hospital administrator Miriam Goldwasser. Sometimes we can even call them if there is an emergency. So they participate in the treatment as it happens. And they just, a very tight piece of our doing of every day to make the children go home healthy and happy. Really, really, they are very important in the whole pediatric hospital. The University of Haifa's theater department offers a BA track in medical clowning. Ati Citron, the director of the track, says it's the first academic program of its kind in the world. He says Israel's medical clowns are developing new ways to help physicians treat young patients more effectively. Take Penny Chanukah, a clown who works with rheumatic children who receive regular injections. She is the first to encounter the patient and the family. So when Penny feels that the patient is totally engaged with her and relaxed then she would be the one to cue the medical team to start the actual injection. 
So that's a big, big move on the part of the medical team to say, we take our cue from the medical clown. We don't decide. We want the patient to be totally relaxed. Another Israeli clown, who calls himself Professor Sancho de la Sponja, created a procedure that persuaded one hospital to stop sedating young patients so they stay still for a diagnostic scan. The clown connects with the child, and then they make a deal that they're both going to freeze during the procedure. Other clowns actually go into pre-op with children and help them relax before surgery. Medical clowning is not an entertainment tool. Yes, it also entertains, but the aim or the main objective is to contribute to the healing process of the child. But not only children. While I was following clowns around in the children's hospital, Israeli clown Michael Bash took some of the visiting international clowns next door to the adult dialysis ward. It was the first time they had worked with adults. There was one man lying in bed, sick people, and five minutes after that he would start dancing in the bed. So you can see, you can see the change immediately. I mean, it's not a big deal. to You can see it. Not every patient wants a clown around. If that's the case, Bash says he leaves the patient alone. And there's also reluctance in Israel's medical community to recognize hospital clowning as a legitimate paramedical profession. The university's Ati Citron is trying to change that. We started a full-time program because we thought that the academization of the profession will eventually make it easier for the ministry, Israeli Ministry of Health to recognize it as one of the branches of, of creative art therapy. Citron says if medical clowns were considered bona fide therapists, hospitals would pay them proper salaries, just like doctors and nurses. That's still a ways off. But that doesn't stop Israeli hospitals from keeping Barambula and Penny and Sancho on speed dial. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Meyer Children's Hospital, Haifa. You can see pictures of the medical clowns in Haifa, big squeaking red noses and all, at theworld.org. Quiz. We're heading back to the Olympics. Actually, we're heading forward. Kind of. Maybe. We're looking for a European capital that's bid for both the 2012 and 2016 Summer Games and lost. First to London and then to Rio de Janeiro. And despite the fact that this city and the whole nation are suffering major economic stress right now, the city is bidding for the 2020 Games. A few more clues. This southern European city is the third largest in the European Union. It's got a good transportation network, fantastic art museums, and beautiful parks. So which European city is bidding to host the next Austerity Olympics? We've got the answer in just a minute. But before we go, one more Olympic note. Today, a Swiss soccer player was expelled from the Games for offensive tweeting. Michel Morganella posted a tweet after his team's loss to South Korea on Sunday. He told the South Koreans that they can go burn. Then he added a racial slur. The IOC responded by stripping him of his Olympic accreditation. Morganella is not the first athlete to get kicked out of the London Games for posting offensive messages on Twitter. A Greek triple jumper was booted from her country's team last week for mocking African immigrants and supporting a far-right political party. The IOC has encouraged athletes to communicate with fans through social media, but to be nice about it. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media. 
providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Spain's recession deepened in the second quarter of 2012, and unemployment jumped to just shy of 25 percent. The crisis has put major infrastructure projects on hold, but one dream project hasn't been sidelined. Madrid still wants to host the Summer Olympic Games in 2020. And Madrid's the answer to our geo-quiz today. The Spanish capital lost out to London for this year and to Brazil for 2016. Given the economic times, Madrid has changed tactics, as the world's Jerry Haddon explains. Ever since Barcelona hosted the Summer Olympics in 1992, Madrid has had its eye on the prize. But Spain's capital has failed twice now. On the eve of the London Games last week, the mayor of Madrid, Ana Botella, gave what she hoped would be, at last, a convincing pitch for 2020. It was a radical departure from earlier presentations. Unos juegos con unas necesidades reducidas de inversión. Games in Madrid would require less financial investment, she said during an Olympics conference, since we already have the majority of the facilities built and will be able to take advantage of existing city services. Normally, when a city sets out to woo the International Olympic Committee, the thrust isn't, we'll save ourselves a lot of money. It's more like, look at all the cool stuff we're going to build. That's how Rio de Janeiro clinched the 2016 Games. Construction work began in June 2012. And in this area of more than 1,100,000 square meters, our Olympic Park is currently under construction. The fact that Spain is emphasizing what it is not going to build is an indication of the tough times. Madrid's pitch actually seems directed at Spaniards themselves, who've come to distrust huge construction projects. In the past decade, many of those projects, empty airports and housing complexes, have turned into embarrassing white elephants, and they've driven the country closer to needing a massive European bailout. So for now, even the Olympics are all about austerity. Alejandro Blanco is the president of Spain's Olympic Committee. He told the London conference that Madrid would spend less in preparations than what tourists in London will spend during the current games. If that's true, it would amount to significant savings for a country in recession. But new sports facilities aren't the only costs in hosting the Olympics. London just spent over $42 million on its opening ceremony alone. In 2008, Beijing spent a reported $100 million. No doubt Madrid's hope lies with time. 2020 is still eight years away, presumably time enough for Spain's economy to turn around. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Finally today, a quick Spanish language lesson. The word locura means craziness. But if you split it into two words, locura means it cures or it heals. The San Francisco-based band that calls itself Locura combines both meanings with its music. That's what reporter Jen Chian found out when she spoke with the group's lead singer. Cata Miletic was born in Spain, the daughter of an American father and a Spanish mother. She spent part of her childhood in Italy, but now lives in San Francisco. So it's not surprising that Locura's new album is called Semilla Caminante, or Traveling Seed. Miletic says it was inspired by a concept from flamenco called ida y vuelta. Ida y vuelta means the going and coming back, so round trip. 
it's this idea of songs and traditions and styles of music that traveled with the people coming from Spain, the sailors, the colonizers, and the, and the Africans to Las Americas. And those traditions mixing here with the indigenous folk here and the different styles and traditions here. And then from Cuba, going back to Spain and then getting incorporated into flamenco. Miletic's own life story reflects Locura's mestizo philosophy. After high school, she moved to her father's native northern California, where she first started singing flamenco. Miletic says she uses the particulars of her unconventional journey to craft the band's lyrics in Spanish and English. So Con el Viento was a song that was inspired by thinking about this kind of resurgence of my Spanish identity here in California because I'd been away from Spain for so many years. When I was being raised in Spain, I didn't have any idea about this kind of this, this, the cultures here, the Latino culture, I wasn't really aware of other Spanish-speaking folk. So, so that song was, was is a song for kind of honoring my, my coming here and all the people who've come through here and all the stories that we carry within, within us. Miletic says she sometimes feels pressured to categorize locura and their sound. Do you fit into this nice neat box of flamenco or, you know, timba or reggae? Or are you a rock band? Are you an indie band? You know, what kind of style do you fit in? The members of locura say they actually don't fit into any particular category. They've come up with some of their own names to describe their sound, like flamenquito or Califas Mestizo music. can't just get into one style, just as I can't just sing lyrics in English or just sing lyrics in Spanish. And so in one way, I, I don't want to fit into any box. I, I want to continue to cultivate the style of music that finds a common ground between different styles, you know, whether it's the African roots, whether it's the indigenous roots of here, of different places, and find how different styles of music really can fit in with each other and groove. And Miletic and Lokura seem to be finding that groove. For the world, I'm Jen Chien in San Francisco. A stylish Katamiletic on stage along with the other members of Locura. That's at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter, and we are back tomorrow. Aunque nunca sabré el porqué ni que lo que se hace ve se siente lo que viviste y lo que no lo siento no lo vivo aunque nunca sabré el porqué ni que lo que se hace ve se siente lo que viviste y lo que no The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.